Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, my co-host Dale and I are excited to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Pennington, the Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Pennington has written a number of books on New Testament theology, particularly on the Gospel of Matthew, but his most important accomplishment to date is very clearly his YouTube series, Cars, Coffee, and Theology, which will be sure to preserve his name for uh, posterity. Uh, but more seriously, <laughs> uh, Dr. Pennington has recently published a fascinating volume entitled Jesus the Philosopher, Recovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life. Uh, instead of overly introducing the text, however, we'll just, we'll just get right to it. Uh, Dr. Pennington, uh, perhaps we could just start with the book's main thesis that the biblical writers and that the, the early church did and that we can coherently look at Jesus as a philosopher. Uh, given our current image of a philosopher, perhaps, you know, many of our, our listeners might be a bit surprised at this. But uh, maybe the first thing we can do is just say, what did that mean? You know, you know, what did it mean to say something, somebody is a philosopher to the earliest Christians? Uh, and how does our contemporary image uh, perhaps distort our ability to grasp that image well? Yeah, great. Well, thanks for having me. This is great. And just our a pleasure. little conversation we've had already before we hit record was super encouraging. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap of thinking, so that's super encouraging to me. Um, yes. Yeah. And uh, I think it was probably not a Freudian slip, but the title is Jesus, the great philosopher, not just Jesus, the philosopher, but that's okay. Ah. We'll, we'll, we'll one up. I miss that. So, sorry, folks. Yeah, okay. uh, I didn't mean, okay. I didn't mean yeah. to, to, to demote Jesus in the philo <laughs> philosophical ranks. I just a typo exactly. there. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Actually, a friend of mine, when he was reading the manuscript uh, in pre-pub form, he added EST and said, you should call Jesus the greatest philosopher. And then I felt kind of bad not going with that, with that suggestion. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm just following your bad greatest. leadership. Exactly. That's what's going on. Another, <laughs> another level lower. Uh, but yeah, I do think he's the greatest philosopher. And I think Christianity is the greatest philosophy of the world. But uh, that's the, you know, you know, I'm not sure how to approach uh, your your good question there. There's so many angles I could come at it, you know, more autobiographically or just sort of historically what's happened. But um, maybe I'll take a stab at both briefly. Uh, the basic idea of the book is that um, from the earliest days of the church, uh, Jesus was thought of as a philosopher and he was talked about as a philosopher. He was depicted in sacred art as a philosopher. And that really continues all the way up, I think, through the medieval, through into the Reformation, I think. Uh, I don't know if most probably aren't familiar with these kind of obscure works by Erasmus called his paraphrases, which are, are a uh, uh, basically translations he did of the Bible that included commentary like built in. It's like an amplified Bible. They're mm. fascinating, but I'm just thinking of like in, in his uh, paraphrase of Matthew, he calls Jesus a philosopher. I mean, so there's already into the, mm. into the 16th century, Jesus is still regularly ca called a philosopher and thought of that way. And what, as I discovered that um, not only that ancient tradition, but then began to look into the Bible more from my perspective as a new Testament guy, I began to see it's not only in the early church that I think you can easily see that the Bible presents Jesus as a philosopher, the New Testament does, and you can go back into the Old Testament and see that Moses was thought of as a philosopher and others in, in, a, in a certain sense. So part of this is a retrieval um, project to kind of say, hey, let's, let's rediscover one of the things that we've lost about 
Christianity, never in a, in a scorched earth way. That's not, I don't think good scholarship to say it's this, not that it's always a both. And, you know, cause obviously Jesus right. is Lord and King and, and sage, which overlap, overlaps with philosopher and savior and friend. There's all those things. I don't want to diminish any of those other titles and roles of Jesus, but I want to help us rediscover uh, this other image that was again, ubiquitous in the ancient world and now is completely absent. Um, I often joke, yeah. you know, if you imagine, and as you do in the book, you know, imagine going into a church and, and you see all these banners with names of Jesus, savior, friend, shepherd, whatever. And if one of them said philosopher, we'd be like, what, <laughs> you know, what kind of right. crazy church have I come into? But I think that's, that's exactly the point that we've really lost something. Um, right. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, what was so interesting about the book is that you really are helping us think, uh, or you're actually shedding away of a lot of a lot of the modern notions of philosophy. When someone hears the word, a typical you know layperson in the pews, when they hear the word, I'm taking a philosophy course. They might think, Oh no, he's leaving the faith, right? He's discovering a new way to look at the world. When this really belonged to um, in the cult life of Israel belong to the worship of Yahweh. Philosophy was simply a way of understanding reality and moving inside of reality uh, to achieve a well-lived life. You talk about that a lot. And even the word philosophy is simply the love of wisdom. Um, at Davenant Institute, we sort of use philosophy and wisdom interchangeably. Um, but throughout the book, you, you, you can feel your lament that this uh, notion, this understanding of philosophy has just been eroded. It doesn't actually mean what it used to mean. And perhaps you could take a minute um, and just talk to us about, and the book talks about how it's, philosophy is now just in this abstract realm of ideas rather than seen as a, a way to uh, live a holistic life completely sort of like uh, ordered towards the good. Mm -hmm. uh, so where, and you even say in the book, you admit, I can't really put my finger on it, but if you're talking to modern people and you're trying to encourage them to study philosophy, what would you say that they need to um, clear away in their thought life first to, to understand what philosophy actually is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good question. Um, you know, it's funny just today, a church member, uh, who was traveling, sent me a picture of a sign they saw, at, I don't know where, some, you know, restaurant or something or someplace. I tweeted it out. It said, the, the wooden sign says, philosophy is a study which enables men to be unhappy more intelligently. <laughs> which I thought is such, that's, that's actually such a great description of modern philosophy. Yes. And in the book, I talk about one of the great, great influences on my life, Steve Martin, the comedian, you know, he said back in like 1978 or whatever that, uh, you know, you remember just enough philosophy from college to screw you up for the right. If you know, that's, but you know, even already in the, in the 19th century and earlier, um, you see this in Kant even earlier that, that there was already an awareness that philosophy had changed. Um, now we're so far removed we often don't realize this, and I've been helped as you guys have, it sounds like, by Pierre Adot, this, but, but already in the 19th and 18th centuries, there was a recognition that there weren't any longer any philosophers. There were just professors of philosophy. I think that's a quote from Thoreau. Yes. And, and that, that's very revealing because now I need to say, I love philosophy, and I think there are some great philosophers today, like Charles Taylor uh, yeah. and some others. Um, and I'll, we can come back to Charles Taylor and how what I'm saying relates to what he's saying. But the the um, 
you know, I love epistemology. I read a ton of epistemology. I teach a class on epistemology regularly. And so I really, I love philosophy of language. So I read in that area. So I, Roger Scruton, there's another great, you know, he just recently passed away, another great philosopher. Yeah. So the, I think modern philosophy still does contribute some things to us, but it's so different than what ancient philosophy was, as you guys know. Ancient philosophy was discipleship. In fact, that's where the New Testament gets that word. Matetes is a Greek philosophical term for following, living with, notice, unless it's a peripatetic philosopher, unless it's one who, you know, is, well, they might even live in one place, but if they're walking around a lot, but yeah. it's li living with a sage, seeing the model of their life, memorizing what they've said, talking with them in dialogue, and learning the way they inhabit the world so because you believe what how they inhabit the world promises you flourishing life and so that's so different than philosophy today you know and it really makes me sad that philosophy has really sold its soul to become a discussion only of abstract ideas some of which are still really helpful but for the most part um has stopped connecting it with what it actually lives means to live well and that's what i'm trying to kind of rediscover and reconnect i'm not alone in this of course you know i mean a lot of a lot sure. of people Right. talked about this Alistair McIntyre and virtue and there's lots of ways people have talked about this but I'm trying to particularly wed it into the Christian faith and rediscover Christianity as as the truest philosophy yeah, yeah there's a there's a another I think he's also influenced by Hideo a, a philosopher I really appreciate Stephen R.L. Clark who's a he's a British philosopher uh who's uh, uh written a, a number of just fascinating works but his he wrote a work called, uh, oh, I have it here, uh, Ancient Mediterranean Philosophy. It's an introduction. But he points out in there that um, one of the things he's trying to do is talk about the, the transition from mythos to logos and sort of the, um, what are all the sources, perhaps? You know, it's just not that Plato sort of arose from nowhere, you know, or were there sources from the East? And he talks about Israel. He actually has a whole section there on Israel. And apparently it was quite common for, um, for uh, you, know, you know, Rome sort of, taking over the Mediterranean empire, basically. It was apparently fairly common uh, for Greece and Ro uh, late, late Greeks and early Romans to refer to Israel as a nation of philosophers. This was the, the only kind of thing they had to understand these people that are kind of serving the one God and have this rigorous relationship to these, this collection of texts. And it's an interesting way of perhaps capturing some of the difference in, in the nuance between the term, you know, sort of then and today. Um, Maybe one thing I would want to ask, uh, in addition, um, uh, if you talk about this in the book, I, I, I missed it, but uh, uh, do you think there's a sense in which, so, so one, one concern that I could imagine somebody having is something like, uh, where you nevertheless do get kind of emphasis on Jesus the sage uh, in contemporary times is typically sort of in the sort of post-Jefferson liber li uh, liberal tradition, right? It's sort of Jesus the sayer of witty aphorisms or something like that. Uh, and, you know, all the way up into the Jesus seminar, you can kind of get these, uh, you, know, you know, sort of there, here's these cryptic utterances that Jesus said, yeah. uh, you know, that sort of thing. Is there a sense in which, um, do you think that we could we could speak of Jesus not only as, uh, and one thing you are clear about, just to be clear, is that Jesus is not only a philosopher, and you've already said that here, Jesus is a philosopher and all of the other things we've always said. But is there another sense in which you think we could theologically say Jesus was a philosopher for us, not just sort of a, a philosopher to us, but that in as much as being the wise man, being the sage is just kind of part of the 
the, the human commission since Adam, uh, uh, that Jesus is actually, there's also almost something redemptive, in, in fact, about him being, well, Paul calls him the wisdom of God, like instantiating that in such a way that he actually kind of fulfills, is there, could we coherently say this, that Jesus fulfills the philosophical commission or something like that in that sense? It's actually part of his whole work, in a sense, to be that philosopher. I wonder what you'd, how you'd respond to something like that. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I can't say that I thought of it exactly that way, but I like it. It resonates, I think, with some other thoughts I've had. Um, it, let me see if I can understand what you're saying exactly. So that um, in some way, even as he's the fulfillment, well, I, I'll say it this way, that I think one aspect of Christianity that maybe the Protestant tradition hasn't talked enough about, but is a big part of the older Christian tradition, is that Christianity is what enables us to become fully human. Mm. And that's, and that's the telos. This is how Aquinas talked a lot and others, right. and he, you know, he just really represents the apex of the most ancient Christian tradition. Right. And that, and that is that you have to understand humanity or theological anthropology from a, from a eschatological perspective. So that you right. look, sure. you look at the telos of humanity, which is the beatific vision and that is how you understand what humanity is. It's going towards that. And so this idea that, again, as Protestants, we don't talk enough about, I think, that Christianity transforms us to reconnect as the second Adam idea, to be able to enter into the fullness of our humanity. And that's our telos, that we're actually going to be transformed into the fullness of humanity. Along that line, I would think, if I understand what you're saying, that makes a lot of sense, that Jesus is wisdom meaning this is part of what it means for a human to enter into the fullness of humanity is to, is to gain the wisdom and notice you tie it back to the, to the fall. It was the knowledge of good and evil yeah. is precisely something that we were not supposed to partake of outside of the will of God. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's always speculation, but it seems like there was another stage of yes. humanity that we were into because of the fall, but that humanity wasn't, had not arrived at its telos with that. Right. It was still going to mature. And it seems like some kind of knowledge or wisdom was part of what we were going to gain if we would not have been rebellious. And so it seems like Jesus as the second Adam would be the sort of the completion of that, that by union with him and by the work of the spirit, we can enter into as well. Yeah. Is that what you're getting at? Or Yeah. I, yeah. I think that, yeah, I think that's right. That, um, yeah, yeah, I think that connects. In other words, like uh, that there there is some um, there's some connection between the the uh, Christ the Sage and the very work of Christ. In other words, there's a sense in which he's fulfilling all of the offices of man in a single life, yeah, like and that. that that his him being the wise man is part of the reason God can say this is this is this is glorify him in a sense like he's fulfilled the commission and, and really in the biblical theology I guess we can see that Christ is sort of glorified and our own glorification is sort of echoing the pattern of what he's already achieved mm-hmm. uh, and his sagedom I, I think it would be intriguing to think of his sagedom as part of that you know his sagedom is part helpful. of that image that's accomplished you know um, yeah. Yeah. so uh, yeah that, that's yeah. Interesting. that's that's helpful and if I might just say that you know that Part of the problem is that the only people in the last 40 years or so that have talked about Jesus' age have been people who have really dropped the ball in the other aspects of right. Jesus' divine, yes. certainly is divine. Well, with the exception of Ben Witherington, his book, Jesus the Sage, is excellent. But beyond him, like in the Jesus seminar and those, obviously they completely deny 
any role for Jesus besides, you know, just that he's a wisdom teacher. And so that most, most people probably aren't really familiar with the Jesus seminar anymore, but if you were, that might give you kind of a bad taste in your mouth of the idea of Jesus being a sage or philosopher, but that's not yeah. what I'm saying. Obviously. No, no, absolutely. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you're, you're, keeping, yeah. you're keeping those things together. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Yeah. Um, Dr. Pennington, you know, one thing that Joe and I were talking about <clears throat> um, near the end of your book, you start talking about happiness. You use the word happy a lot. Um, and it always strikes me because when I use the word happy, I feel like I have to qualify it. When I have to say, you know, Christianity um, does contribute to my happiness. Um, I always have to say, and what I mean by that is some approximation of joy and satisfaction and fullness of life and peace, uh, you know, so I'm trying to weave inside of the word happy virtue. And I'm trying to say when you accomplish a well-ordered uh, life that's headed towards the good, then you feel at peace with yourself and in, with the cosmos and your right relationship with God. Um, I, I, don't, I guess I don't have to say much about how people today, especially coming out of 2020 and going into 2021, a lot of people just aren't happy. Um, so maybe it would be helpful if you clarify like what is the real, what is ha happiness in its fullest sense in the sense that you mean it and then what does wisdom do how does wisdom function as sort of a medium through which people um can find themselves in a, a you know in this state called happiness mm. yeah that's a great question i um I'm ambivalent about the word happy itself because of the qualifications that it does always need. Uh, it's become a very weak word that, as I think yeah. I say in the book, it basically means a temporary state of pleasure that you're aware of emotionally and something, which is of course not what it meant. <laughs> Did we lose him? <laughs> I think we lost him. You can bring it back or not. And I, I don't know that you can. So I tend to use flourishing, although that word is already getting a little tired now. Uh, and I tend to use the word uh, thriving as well. Mm. But again, flourishing and thriving are what, I'm, what I mean by happiness in the sense of um, fully uh, sh or shalom is the Old Testament biblical word, for, yeah. you know, uh, I don't like the word blessed. And if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the previous book, the Sermon on the Mount and human flourishing, I have lengthy discussion there of, of the Greek word makarios and the hmm. Hebrew word asher to show that those words don't mean blessed in the English sense. They mean more flourishing and happy, like in the Beatitudes. Um, but again, happy, happy is a very thin word today. And so when I, I also, if I use it, I always have to qualify it the same way right. that you do. Um, yes. Or I'll use flourishing. But the basic idea is that God has made us for life, um, for l'chaim, you know, you know, fiddler on the roof, you know. Yeah, God, that's right. God has made us for this fullness of life, shalom, if you want to call it that, beatitude, uh, makariosness, if you can make up an English word. He's made us for that. Uh, that's what I think, especially the Gospel of John means when it talks about life. Uh, if you may notice, I put in the frontispiece, one of my favorite texts from John 6, where uh, Jesus says, after all the people are leaving him, are you going to leave me too? And Peter steps up and says, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. Yes. Right. You, know, you and I, the scripts that trigger for us there are like eternal life, meaning like heavenly existence. But that's that's a secondary sense of that. Life means 
flourishing. Like whenever, yes. whenever you see life in John, you should think flourishing or it, or that, because that's the basic idea. And so that's what I mean by happy. Um, you know, it's funny if you go back, even in the 18th century, like you'll see this in Edwards. If you read Edwards, he, mm. he uses happiness and uh, blessed slash flourishing interchangeably. So at least then you could still use happy in a much thicker sense. I think today it is, it is a pretty thin word, but maybe, yeah. I, maybe I didn't answer your question, Dale. <laughs> what, no, no, no. That's, that's great. I mean, um, one of the things that I try, I have a, a, a teenager, he's 13. Um, and um, him and I are uh, working through some books that are dealing with happiness at the moment. Um, not directly happiness, but just a well-ordered life. Uh, one of them by J.C. Ryle uh, called Thoughts for Young Men. Mm. And what I'm telling my son is what seems to be painful up front is actually going to prevent all of these bad things on the back end. So son, if you learn to like get up early in the morning and create good habits, that might be sort of like white knuckling life for a moment. But there's a reciprocal thing that happens. And Joe, you and I have talked about this. Mm -hmm. There's this reciprocal relationship between sort of like our outward, uh, the focus on an outward act and then it internal internalizing the principle that the outward act is supposed to conform to. And then when the soul sort of lines up with those things, then you're like, ah, oh, I feel happy, you know, um, so I'm telling my son, the reason I'm screaming at you, son, is for your own good. <laughs> this, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Uh, that sort of thing. Neil is still a boomer. Uh, so uh, That's right. <laughs> Meetings will continue until morale improves. Improve. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think, I think uh, the, in the philosophical tradition, of course, happiness has more the sense that you're using it. Like when you read your Augustine and your Aquinas and your Aristotle and all these people, they're all thinking of happiness as sort of like that thing that everybody wants. Whatever you're aiming for in some direct or indirect way, you're aiming for happiness. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, there was this there was this kind of more primitive sense of the term that, yeah, it doesn't quite have the the more therapeutic almost meaning that is more associated with it today. Um, eudaimonia, of course, is the Greek word. Eudaimonia is the ultimate word. Right. That. So we we still we still refer to the eudaimonistic tradition or eudaimonistic ethics or something. Right. Focuses on flourishing. Right. Right. So. Right. Um, you know, sometimes uh, one of the, the other intriguing things I found in your book and just very helpful, um, in fact, I was in a conversation with somebody recently where I was trying to make the case that it, it seems to me at least, you know, as I open the Gospels and, uh, and read these, these various statements of Christ, that the, that the social and even political implications of them are just legion. That is to say that he's saying something that is, that is such a distilled little statement that, that we tend to take as just about personal relationships. That is to say, Jesus says all these kinds of things that have their ground, perhaps, their most immediate implications in this kind of face-to-face -face dynamic that we're experiencing right now. Uh, but you argue that there's a manner in, in, in which uh, this, even those statements, uh, directly connect to the to the community and to the polis. Like yes. they have the, they have the, 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 the they thread into that. Uh, can you clarify? Um, maybe this is this is this is gosh, this is a big question. <laughs> uh, 
in what sense, and I'm not trying to get uh, pol overly political in any of the popular senses of that term, but how do you think the teachings of Christ apply to the modern polis as a polis? Like if you were to say like, hey, here's a thing that Jesus would say to all that we all need to hear right now. And it has political implications. What would what would come to mind for you? <laughs> uh, I'm um, asking who you voted for. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, yeah. We so <laughs> I, let, let me say a bunch of things that aren't really an answer to that. That'll sound really cool. So here we go. First, we go. Um, uh, my main point is. Uh, that Christianity views itself as a polis, as a, as, or the kingdom, if you want to call it the kingdom. Yeah. But that, that, I'm so tired of a term too that we don't think much about it. But it's a, it's a group of people who find flourishing by living together in certain ways. So that, that's the idea of the, the polis, right? And that there's a, the politeia is this sort of, um, this community and even the the sort of constitution if you think about how plato talks about this in aristotle too as well that there there's this sort of spirit and this constitution written or unwritten modeled by the king ultimately that shows you how to live together and so that really the vision of christianity uh is like all other ancient visions uh one that you cannot experience flourishing by yourself ultimately. I mean, you, you, right. all, you do have to work on your own virtue, et cetera. But so that, that's my main point of the book is to just recognize that again, the, the ancient philosophies thought about these big ideas and provided answers for them. And when you go to the Bible with those same questions that they raise, you realize, Oh my goodness, the Bible actually is thinking the same way. It's just giving right. from what my opinion is the truest answer to those, the wisest answer. Right. So that's yeah. the big idea I'm trying to get at the, the out that's, it's kind of more of an inward facing the outward facing. But I think you're asking, and that is how does then Christianity relate to the world in which it finds itself. And I will just say, um, I mean, I've been helped by many people, uh, Peter Lightheart, I talk about in there. I don't talk about O'Donovan very much, but Oliver O'Donovan, from what yes. from the, I'm no expert on him, but from what I understand, I'd be most aligned with where he is. Um, but I feel so inadequate in the area of public theology. I mean, I still yeah. feel like that's kind yeah. of a that's kind of a horizon that I'm. We're still there with you, yeah. get to, <laughs> right? Even though I care very much about it, but I just yes. feel very uh, uh, appropriately sober in my own. Uh, confidence about saying yeah. anything in time yeah that area there i i really want to know that area more and i'm working towards it but i i really just feel very inadequate. sure yeah i wonder yeah. If, oh, i go care ahead, about yeah. it yeah yes well in that same vein i think uh this is around the section where you also talk about um relationships friendships mm -hmm. I mean, you sort of move from the atom of friendship into the collection of friendships, the collection of individuals and the polis. Um, and you know, you're also talking about familial relationships. I think that this was probably my favorite part of the book because I'm a very, I'm a deeply relational guy. Uh, anybody that knows me will just, you know, oh yeah, you know, Dale's friends with everyone. Um, and if I'm not friends with you, it's for a really good reason. So, no. <laughs> um, but I, I particularly liked how you pointed out the awkwardness that male friendships have in the modern yeah. age. And it's something that I've uh, written about and spoke about, uh, have spoken about for years now. 
uh, and you talk about Jonathan and David. Um, and the reason I appreciate it so much is because, especially in conservative circles, uh, since the sexual revolution and the sort of gay rights movement and now the transgender rights movement, uh, you know, uber confessional conservative Christians will feel like uh, they have to preserve something, you know, in terms of like sexual identity and just the sexuality of ethic of the Bible, that they actually give up biblical principles of relationships to preserve that thing that's not really being taken away from them. Um, and that seems to me to be a, a tragedy. Um, because I actually can't function, I can't actually do life well without my group of very intimate male friends. Mm -hmm. And my, I'm blessed to have a wife that understands the, the, the necessity for those relationships. And she, she very much is encouraging me to have them. And I've watched my own life flourish because of them. Um, maybe, uh, maybe not to, not to throw you another hard one. I'm the guy that asked the easy questions, by the way, Joe's always the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what are some real practical things that we can do um, to pursue these relationships, to pursue these intimate relationships, whether that be in the context of our church with our neighbors that are right next door to us, um, or, you know, just people we meet in the grocery store or whatever, how do we get out of this, um, the individualistic uh, sort of impulse of modern man to turn outward and sort of feel vulnerable without quote unquote feeling gay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, boy, I care about this a ton too. Um, yeah, so that chapter, so there's the second half of the book as you probably gathered is um, I try to pivot and apply this idea of Christianity as a philosophy to three big topics, relationships, um, What's the other one? Oh yeah. <laughs> Emotions, relationships, and happiness. Right. And yes. so that's in that yeah. of the three sort of applications. And so that for me was a really important personal part of the book because I too have been blessed with some amazing friendships and, and very, I'm very intentional about cultivating my friendships with a few people. And so for me, that was really a, a meaningful research and, and writing time to sort of dig more deeply into that. And once again, to find that in ancient philosophy, they thought a ton about friendship. You know I mean? It was like so central to their idea of flourishing and it just resonated with experience has been as well. And it kind of gave me a way to, to, in our, and to pursue even more. Um, so credit. So a couple of thoughts on that one. Uh, sorry. Can you, I'm saying my connection. No, we're, we're here. here. Yep. Okay, great. Uh, so first credit where credit's due. I was greatly helped in that section by my friend Wes Hill's book on spiritual friendship, which I'd highly recommend. And especially the idea that, um, and so this is really, I run the men's ministry among other things at my church. And this has really become central to what I'm doing in our men's ministry, which is a very atypical men's ministry. It's not about, you know, everybody being macho together, although there's plenty of that too, I guess, but, but there it's about, connecting the the motto of our men's ministry is connect men with God, connect men with each other and recognizing that both of those are actually essential for a man to flourish. They, he needs to be connected with God and he needs to be connected to other men. And if either of those are missing, you're not going to flourish. That's the kind of vision of the men's ministry I'm running. So, so friendship is essential to that. And one of the big things I got from Wes's book is um, 
the idea that so many ways that we think about romantic relationships now, probably from the 19th century, especially on from the romantic era and on are ways that in the previous world, they thought about same gender relationships. So even the idea of my other half or my better half or my another self that is just like me, all this kind of stuff you hear on a, you see in a Pinterest, you know, wedding planning, you know, uh, scheme. Sure, Those sure. were all things that men said about each other and women said about each other because there was a recognition. Here's how boldly I'd say it is that I think no marriage can really thrive if both of the partners don't have very significant same gender yeah. relationships outside of the marriage, mm. because those are really what provide the ballast for us to develop as men and women, because mm. sexuality is a great thing, but it also jacks everything up too. <laughs> it just really, it, it messes stuff up. And so, I mean, I don't mean it's all negative. I just mean, you yeah, know, it, right, right. It, no. adds a, it adds an element <laughs> that, is very, that is very different. And so I just really believe uh, ancient people believe as well men need men and women need women and that's actually probably the primary relationship and that's kind of that's kind of edgy to say that because i'm not in any way diminishing marriage but i'm just saying i think a marriage will only as be as healthy as its outside same gender relationships are as well because there's mm. a ballast that it provides so um my marriage is imperfect my friendships are imperfect but um, it's something I really care about. And brief, more briefly, secondly, I, I'm actually doing some more work on friendship now. In fact, just uh, two weekends time, I'll be in uh, another state uh, in Texas um, teaching on friendship. Oh, and cool. So I'm developing more. And just this week, I'll just throw out to you this new idea here. So practical tap, tips. That's what I'm asking myself too. Like, how do I teach people how to pursue friendship? Well, um, the acronym I've come up with so far is... ITTP, which would be intentional thought, time, and presence. So as I think about my relationships with some dear male friends, how there's always a natural affinity, you know, there's always that, and that's okay. It's okay. There's some people I just like better than others and feel sure. with. But then even within those natural affinities, I'm very intentional about spending time with them, about thinking about them, buying presents for them calling them, stopping by their houses. And, and then so as I think about just two or three men, maybe even one in particular in my life right now, who's a very close friend, that's what I do. I'm just super thoughtful. I text him regularly. I stop by his house. We go golfing together. And it's a very intentional time, thought, and presence um, that is yeah. so far what I'm, what I'm kind of reflecting on about how, what it means to be a good friend. So yeah, yeah. Our, our, uh, as it turns out, our vice president of our organization, Davenet, uh, is uh, currently working on his dissertation uh, on friendship in Aristotle. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, no, this is this is a, a dear theme, and I, and I resonate very deeply with all of the, yeah, all of Me the things you're describing, and, the, and the, that's a great, and that acronym is great. Um, given that we just have a, we have about uh, uh, just fifteen or so minutes here. Um, one or two other things I wanted to, to bring up and just get your feedback on. Uh, my friend Patrick Steffen has written a, a book called the, the Power of Resurrection, and, and it's, a, it's published by Fortress. And he's basically using kind of power analysis to look at how the early church 
uh, was able to essentially overturn the Roman Empire in some fundamental way. And one of the things he argues is the, the, that, that Caesar's power, you know, sort of using a Foucauldian analysis, I guess, that Caesar's power was very much uh, 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 exemplified in his power over life and death. This is what holds the subjects captive is sort of the power of clemency, right? He can put the thumbs up or the thumbs down in crucifixion, especially the image of this cross was a, a very visceral sort of sense of like Caesar's authority, you know, throughout the Roman empire. And then you have this man die on a cross uh, and that becomes the symbol of power. And he sort of shows how, this is why early martyr accounts in part were so significant is like, here was these, here was this whole group of people that were just unafraid of death. <laughs> like Caesar couldn't control a growing population of people who really didn't care about what he could do to them. Uh, and I wonder if that's, uh, but, but as I was reading this book, it struck me, that's a really interesting angle because of course the, the kind of fear of death, and, I, and I'm reminded of that passage in Hebrew, the fear of death is such a, uh, for, from, from the pre-Socratics all the way up to, to, to ancient uh, or to um, uh, late antique philosophy, the relationship to death and stoicism and all of that is a huge part of the philosophy. And I wonder if there's a way of looking at, um, uh, 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 the early Christian movement as philosophical in part because it had a very particular thing to say about death. One of the things that it's the greatest philosophy over is that Hebrews can say uh, through him, you know, we, we've overcome him who had the power of, uh, I, I'm butchering it here, but you remember in Hebrews too, this passage, you know, sort of that we've been held captive by the fear of death all our lives. And Jesus has sort of <laughs> come in and like taking care of this fundamental impulse. And I think even at 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about resurrection, sometimes we read this, uh, you know, Christ hasn't been raised, eat, drink, and be merry, um, as though Paul is sort of being corny. Uh, or as Paul's saying, like, look how shallow that is. There's a part of me, though, that wonders if Paul is being quite serious, almost saying, like, hey, if I didn't believe this, that would be a coherent approach to life. Uh, uh, and yet, because death has been overcome, here is a completely different way to organize existence in reality. And I wonder if just there's a resonance between that a framing sort of, I wonder if you think maybe there's philosophical purchase, basically, uh, in thinking about the relationship between the early Christian movement and its and it's discourse about death, basically. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a really intriguing idea. Thanks for sharing that. Um, the idea that that's the power of Caesar and that's very subverting Christianity one anyway. That's really helpful. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, I, I wish, so I have several more books along these lines in me that I'm working on. One of them that I want I, the title I would love to give that I, I know no, will not sell, including with the publisher, because I've run it by my friends at the publisher <laughs> that I work with. Um, and that is this word I've made, Christo, you know, one word, Christoicism. I'm pretty proud of it. It's actually a pretty good Christoicism. word. Christoicism. Oh, Christ Christ oh but, I like it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but I guarantee you, I will not be able to sell a book with that title. So I probably will get destroyed it's gonna by It's going to be called Christoicism. No, I'm serious. Yeah, uh, then exactly. Maybe, right. In parentheses or something. Yeah. But anyway, the idea is that, um, as I mentioned a little bit in this book, uh, I, I, really, I really appreciate Stoicism and have benefited greatly from its practices mm -hmm. it reappropriated interpreted through my own christian experience and and metaphysic but i really do appreciate many aspects of ancient and modern stoicism be like you know, yeah 
Holiday and Ryan Holiday and others, I think, are helpful in a lot of ways. Um, but there, there is this. Well, so I'll say it this way: that I think Stoicism is probably like the second greatest philosophy of the world. That's how I often yeah. joke. Call it, you know, yeah. with Christianity is the greatest philosophy. And I, I don't mean. I mean, I have plenty of disagreements with Stoicism. I mean, some. I think ultimately it's bankrupt when it comes to things like death, various aspects of suffering. And at the same time, I'm very appreciative of some of its practical helps to sort of deal with anxiety and yeah. you know, be virtuous in the moment. There's tons of things I appreciate. And I also think it's, you know, inferior to Christianity, but the, the fear of death is certainly something that I think apart from Christianity, the Stoic tradition probably has about the most to offer. Again, I think ultimately there's no hope. All that you can say with Stoicism is you just need to get free from the fear of it. But right. Christianity is offering uh, resources, a way of life that is much more powerful and profound than just getting rid of the fear of death. It's actually the hope for a renewed age when all will be made right and there will be redemption and restoration. And I just think that's infinitely more powerful and profound yeah. than yes. just learning to eliminate the fear of death, which is, I think, another way of saying what your friend's very insightful book is saying that if some, when people get a hold of that, it does, there's nothing anybody, no government or anybody yes. can do to them. Yeah. Yes. If you've got a sure hope that is transformative now, you're, you're free. I mean, there's yes. nobody can do anything to you. Yeah. Powerful idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll make one last comment and then I'll take us down because we could talk. There's so many more things that I wish we could cover about this book. I, I wanted to talk about um, your section on emotions in particular, uh, but we will be friends, brother. And I will, I will, I will co-opt you for more stuff. But oh, I lost it. I lost what I was going to say completely. That's it. We're friends here, Dale. It's all right. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll ask one final question sure. just because it's a, uh, uh, one of the things that's sort of a hobby of mine and I'm not, I'm no, nowhere near advanced in this, but precisely because there's just not, there's not a lot of people really trying to put there. there this is changing and you're, and you're part of it changing, but there's, there's only a handful of people putting the New Testament in direct conversation with, you know, the, the contemporary philosophers of the time. Um, and one of the questions I've always had is like one, um, one of the historians of philosophy I've really appreciated is Julian Marius. Uh, and uh, he, he sort of argues that one of the motions you see sort of from the pre-Socratics through, through the, the late antique period is this attempt to kind of unify everything. So, you know, you start with Thales, right? Everything's water, you know, Parmenides, everything's being, and Plato and Aristotle have their various formulations. But it's striking to me, um, so, so part of what your book did was, was just really help me see the questions that philosophy was asking at the time are questions that the Bible is directly addressing. And one, one area where I wonder if that's happening is there's these several moments in, in, in Ephesians 1 and, and, and in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 3, where Paul sort of uses this interesting language about Jesus as sort of like the unifier of all things, everything sort of summed up in him, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and even though there's a, there's a, there's an old Testament sort of redemptive historical thread that's coming together there. I wonder if the language of, uh, uh, 
the, the unification language, the balling it all together language that Paul seems to be getting at is a very kind of Hellenistic motion of the mind that he's putting in conversation with this redemptive historical, uh, redemptive historic, these redemptive historical threads. And I wonder if that's even like a, uh, uh, you would know this better than me, if that's even like a plausible question to ask, or if that's obviously wrong, <laughs> I guess. Uh, uh, oh, I think it's exactly, and that's what I'm trying to sh- Ben mentioned the biggest smoking gun, Logos. <laughs> I mean, John yes. John 1 calls Jesus the Logos. I mean, that's right. so obviously a, a great Greek philosophical cosmological term. Like it's the right. blueprint for all things are held together. And so that's, and then Col- your Colossians, in him, all things hold together, et cetera. Yeah, so totally agree. I think it's the right question. That's what I'm trying to sit, show is that Again, ancient philosophy or any religion or philosophy worth its salt is going to have a metaphysic. It's going to have an understanding of how the cosmos exists, came into being, functions, exists, holds together. Because for the ancient philosophers, you have to know that if you're going to have an ethic, because your ethic is not going to work if it doesn't correspond with the nature of reality, right? So, right. so whatever, you have, whatever, whatever um, cosmology you have, is directly organically going to affect your ethic because your ethic is living in according with nature. Okay. Yeah. And so, so the Bible is presenting itself from Genesis one, one on as a very distinct view of how the world came into being, how it is sustained and how it exists and where it's going to go, what it's tell us is. And that's true in the old Testament. And then the new Testament understands itself as Jesus is actually the agent creation, the one in whom all things hold together and the consummation of it. So, I mean, that is like the ultimate cosmological. Yeah, sure, that's sure, right. Sure. Yeah, that he's, yeah. Sure. he's the logos. And it's, therefore, if you're going to flourish, you have to be connected to him. He's, and he's the his, grand, grand unified field theory. Remarkable. I mean, the claims are shocking. Yes. And that's, that's why I really do believe along with my and Tim Gombus and others who've argued this, that if you want to find the most sort of universal Pauline theology, it's actually in Ephesians and Colossians. Like yeah. we, t- we typically think Romans, which is obviously hugely important. And for the yes. issues, Romans is it's like super clear and super important. But when you kind of pull back and say, what's the sort of real metaphysic of Pauline theology? I think it's most clearly found in Ephesians and Colossians, which give this much more sort of comprehensive view of who Christ is and how he relates to the world. He disarmed the authorities of the world, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yes. That's very good. Well, Jesus, the great philosopher, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, it was a pleasure. And uh, yes. I'm sure we'll chat more. Um, now that I have your email address, you won't be able to get away so easily. <laughs> so we'll chat, brother. But thank you so much for coming on. Yes, Everyone, you. you can head over to uh, davenantinstitute.org to check out Pilgrim Faith. Uh, you can also subscribe on the YouTube channel and find us on Facebook. But until then, John, uh, uh, Joe, love you, brother. Love you, man. Uh, Dr. Pennington, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Wish we had more time to talk. Hope let's do it again yeah. sometime. This is yes. great. Absolutely. All right, gentlemen. See you later.